This is Dan Mendes from NextGen Venture Partners coming off of a great conversation with Jerry Brito, the executive director of Coin Center. Coin Center is effectively the lobbyist for blockchain and for Bitcoin. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting conversation for those who are interested in an introduction to blockchain. What the heck is it and why does it matter? Um, and I think it also is great for those who are deep into blockchain um, but might be interested in the regulatory, the policy, the uh, federal legislation that relates to it and how that legislation might impact the future of blockchain generally. Uh, Jerry is the leading expert on uh, blockchain and po public policy. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Jerry, what does Coin Center do? Well, Coin Center um, really does three things um, we engage in education. Uh, we engage in policy thinking and we engage in advocacy all around uh, cryptocurrency and open blockchain networks. So things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, uh, and the like. We basically uh, exist to make sure that folks in government understand the technology, uh, know how it works, make sure that they can have all their questions answered, uh, and then to make sure that um, any uh, policy making uh, that affects these technologies uh, is reasonable, is rational, um, and is as light touch as possible to technology continue to uh, to flourish as it has been doing. How did you get into this? Well, um, so I, I've been working in technology policy my whole career. Um, before starting Coin Center, I was at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, and there I uh, started and directed the technology policy program, which focused on uh, sort of the you know, uh, regulation and the cost and benefits regulation uh, of technology, uh, broadly speaking. Um, and, you know, when I discovered Bitcoin in, in uh, 2011, 2012, um, I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole, as a lot of folks tend to do. Um, it was just uh, an incredibly... Uh, elegant system uh, that I could see would have um, just huge implications for all kinds of different uh, industries for the internet, and at the same time, I could just see that there were very, you know very many regulatory um, implications that a lot of folks at the moment weren't weren't thinking of. Um, so you know, eventually, uh, uh, by, by my the end of my time at Mercatus, uh, Bitcoin was taking up um, probably you know almost all of my my time. Uh, so how did you how did you go from a uh, a guy at Mercatus spending most of your time on, on Bitcoin to a guy uh, starting running uh, a, a blockchain focused research and advocacy organization? Well, I mean, um, it, it really wasn't that different, right? I mean, Mercatus is kind of focused on mostly on on the research and education piece. Um, so adding the advocacy piece. Um, uh, uh, took a lot of learning, but but it, but it really wasn't that different. Um, I, I had it was incredibly fortunate um, to have number one some uh, sort of seed backers to help us get this thing off the ground, um, and also um, some uh, uh, help from some lobbyists who have been working um, in DC for a very long time who uh, were very smart about this topic. And that we've been working with for a very, you know, for you know, since we've been uh, uh, started, um, that uh, I've learned a lot from. So you know, um, 
uh, you know, I guess with, even within Mercatus, starting um, and growing the technology policy program was like a little mini startup, which I think was kind of training wheels for uh, doing it for real. And who, who were those seed backers? Um, so it was a bunch of folks. Um, some of the folks that you'll recognize uh, are Andreessen and Morowitz, um, Union Square Ventures, um, were two big backers, um, and then a, a few companies in the space. Um, uh, including Coinbase, 21, um, uh, Bitfury, um, BitPay, um, and, and that list has grown uh, since then. And if I remember correctly, I think Mark Andreessen was an, originally a board member, I think now is an advisor. There's some, someone else at Andreessen Horowitz who's on your board. Uh, what did, uh, you know, and I think they were early advocates um, of, of blockchain generally and the, the promise there. Uh, what did they see in it and why, you know, why was it so important to them to create a, a public policy, Washington, D.C. focused organization on blockchain? Well, you know, I, I think they saw what, 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 what I saw, what everybody sort of saw, which is that um, this technology was taking off. Um, obviously, as, as investors, that um, uh, uh, is what attracted them to the technology. Um, and at the same time, there was just growing uh, interest uh, from government. There's no secret that this technology um, is often put to illicit uses. Um, it's also the case that this technology has you know, really um, great promise uh, uh, to grow the economy and, and, and make things uh, more efficient. Uh, you know, and at the time, there really wasn't any um, serious, mature voice uh, for this technology. So when a member of Congress wanted to pick up the phone and call Bitcoin, there was nobody they could reach because Bitcoin is an open source uh, project that, that um, uh, and it's a peer to peer network. So there's, you know, it's kind of like picking up the phone and calling email. There's nobody you can call. So there was sort of a felt need um, that there should be somebody on our line to, to pick up that, that phone call. And something I, I sort of um, hasten to add, because this is sort of very important to me and, and something that I, I wouldn't have, you know, coming from academia, I wouldn't have, um, taken this, this, this job uh, otherwise, uh, uh, Coin Center is not a trade association. So we don't represent uh, Andreessen Horowitz or Unisquare Ventures or any of the companies that support us. And it's important to note that um, uh, about half of our funding comes from investors and company in the space, um, but the other half comes from individuals uh, who simply care um, deeply about the technology as I do. Um, and uh, uh, and so, yeah, we don't, we don't represent the industry, we represent any particular company. Um, and uh, so, you know, we're independent that way. And I think that that helps us, um, uh, you know, be taken uh, seriously. What's the promised land for you 10 years from now? What do you hope blockchain has sort of unleashed into the world? Well, um, so part of the exciting thing is uh, that, the, that the real answer is I don't know. Um, uh, the beauty of the open blockchain networks is... Uh, that like the internet, um, they are open platforms for innovation. They're permissionless. You can, you know, you, 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 there's no gatekeeper. There's no AOL whose permission you need to build um, an application on top of it. Um, it is, you know, like the internet, like the web. Um, and so when Mark Zuckerberg decided he wanted to build Facebook, he didn't need anybody's permission. He could just code it up and launch it in a day or two. And if it was good, people were going to come to it. And if it wasn't, people weren't. And, and but they did. Um, and so blockchain networks are very, very much um, the same way. 
um, they're permissionless. And it's keeping that permissionless uh, aspect to them that we spend a lot of our time um, uh, making sure that, you know, as policymakers think through this, they don't do anything inadvertently um, or otherwise uh, affects that, that permissionlessness uh, of the networks. Um, that said, um, you know, I, I uh, some obvious um, areas where uh, this technology um, addresses uh, issues are, you know, number one, in payments. Uh, probably not in the developed world where we happen to have, you know, a pretty robust payment system. Um, but especially in the developing world where we don't have um, good payments uh, systems, uh, you can imagine something like like Bitcoin um, being adopted because in order to use it, all you need is a uh, smartphone, an internet connection, and free open source software. And boom, you can now accept payments from anybody, uh, and you can now access global trade and global markets. Um, so to me, you know, there's the payments aspect, there is the store of value um, aspect of, of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies like it, um, which, you know, to, again, folks in developing in developing countries um, and countries where you don't have uh, very good monetary stability, um, that is attractive. I think that would be good um, uh, uh, for social welfare globally. Um, uh, beyond that, I think there are other applications that don't just have to do with money, um, uh, like uh, like identity, uh, things like uh, prediction markets. Um, uh, uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot um, that can be done with this technology that goes beyond money. A little over a decade ago, I read a, a fun book called The PayPal Wars, which I, I guess I would guess mm-hmm. that you've read as well, which uh, yeah. st- started with this idea of P- you know, Peter Thiel as the co-founder and CEO of PayPal saying, we are going to effectively create a sort of similar permissionless uh, currency. We are going to make it so that you know, government and money are separated and that if you live in, I think Argentina was the country uh, of the moment, mm-hmm. if you live in a country like Argentina that is going to have monetary policy that devalues values your currency and effectively, in his, you know, in his view, steals the wealth of its citizenry, you can put your money in PayPal and you can be protected. And, and that was sort of this, this grand vision. And over time it was, yeah, but now we have to deal with state-by-state insurance regulators and, and federal banking code. And, and that vi- while PayPal became a successful company, that vision fell apart. I'm curious, you know, are there uh, you know, lessons or sort of warning signs from that experience, or is blockchain just something totally different? Yeah, so the difference um, uh, between uh, Bitcoin and PayPal is that PayPal was a company. Um, Bitcoin is not a company. Bitcoin is an internet protocol. And so as a company, um, you're going to have a difficult time creating uh, a currency uh, that is not going to be subject to, to government control because as a company, you're subject to government control, right? You're going to have to um, uh, comply with um, any number of regulations that may be imposed uh, on you. And, uh, and quite frankly, a lot of, you know, most of these regulations um, make a lot of sense uh, why they're around. I mean, for example, um, state-by-state money transmission licensing is there because as a company, you take custody of consumer funds and if you run away or you go out of business uh, or you're hacked, um, uh, you know, states want to make sure um, that you can make uh, persons whole uh, by requiring a bonding uh, requirement or insurance or otherwise just making sure you're not a scammer before they allow you to, to do business. Um, so that's a company. With something like Bitcoin, it's an internet protocol. 
Um, so if, if I uh, acquire Bitcoin, I hold it myself and I can send it to others on the network. And so by holding it myself, there is no third party. There is no company that can lose my funds. Um, and so um, the, there is no company to regulate there. I mean, you can regulate users, uh, I guess, um, but that certainly raises the costs uh, for government to, to regulation. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it, these are, these are um, sort of very different things. And I think there, there have been a lot of um, attempts at creating electronic cash uh, that relied on uh, central intermediaries, usually companies, um, uh, and, and Bitcoin sort of, you know, and, and those never really worked out, and Bitcoin kind of addresses that by um, uh, removing the, the, the intermediary, right? You just have peer-to-peer cash, and that's really the, the breakthrough uh, of Bitcoin. Um, I hasten to add, though, that while the network is completely open and permissionless, um, and you don't have, you know, you don't need intermediaries uh, to use the network, um, there are many intermediaries that um, uh, that you might choose to use. So, for example, if you want to acquire Bitcoin um, and you don't have a friend you can buy it from, or, you, or you're not going to do work and be paid in it, uh, probably the, the easiest thing for you to do would be to go to a Bitcoin exchange and exchange dollars for Bitcoin. And these exchanges are companies that are subject to all the same, you know, very, very much the same type of regulation that something like that was. Um, so that's still a, a factor there. And uh, there's also a taxation question as well. Can you flush that out? Uh, sure. Um, so, I mean, the tax question is kind of straightforward um, in that, um, uh, you know, if you use Bitcoin to buy something uh, that has sales tax, well, you still owe, owe uh, sales tax. If you're paid in Bitcoin, um, you still need to pay income tax, right? So those are pretty straightforward things. Um, where there's a question is, if you invest in Bitcoin and you hold Bitcoin and it appreciates in value, um, uh, how is that taxed, right? Um, uh, you know, if you make a gain from investing in Bitcoin, how is that taxed? And uh, the IRS in 2014 uh, looked at this question and they issued guidance and they said, and really the question was, how do, how do they classify Bitcoin? And by the way, when I say Bitcoin, when I mean any cryptocurrency, it goes the same for Ethereum or Zcash or anything else. Um, uh, if you look at, um, at the statute, there are really only two categories um, uh, under which something like Bitcoin could, could, uh, could be put. One would be currency and one would be property, right? Um, and uh, it, it, Bitcoin doesn't really qualify as currency even though we, we think about it as a digital currency um, because we think about making payments uh, using Bitcoin it really is a currency because um, uh, uh, the definition of, of currency in the statute uh, kind of specifies that it needs to be legal legal tender in a, uh, uh, of a nation and Bitcoin certainly isn't that um, so really currency wasn't an option and so by sort of by default uh, Bitcoin is property and so if it's property, um, if it's like a tangible good, right, like gold or like, um, uh, you know, a car, um, it, it has the beneficial effect for investors that it is then subject to capital gains tax rather than uh, being taxed as ordinary income. Uh, and as an investor, it's good because, of course, your um, uh, capital gains tax is going to be, your, you know, capital gains tax rate is going to be lower than your marginal tax rate typically. Um, 
so that's good for investors who maybe want to buy uh, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin, hold on to it for a while, and then sell it, hopefully uh, for a gain. You're only going to have to pay capital gains tax on that gain. Unfortunately, what this means though is um, that if you buy Bitcoin to use it uh, for everyday payments, um, and let's say you know I buy one Bitcoin for for one dollar today, and then uh, next month it has doubled in value to two dollars, and I use that Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee for two dollars. I have experienced a one dollar gain, and uh, uh, according to the letter of law, I need to track that gain, report that gain to the IRS, and pay taxes on that gain, even though it's a dollar. Um, and so this creates a lot of friction for using uh, Bitcoin for you know day-to-day transactions because you know just about every transaction is going to have some kind of minuscule gain or loss that you have to keep track of. Um, and so to address that, um, what we've done is we've worked with uh, folks in Congress to introduce a bill that would create a de minimis exemption that says um, for any personal transaction under $600, um, you uh, don't need to track it. You don't need to report it. You don't need to pay taxes uh, on that. Um, and so, you know, this would encourage uh, folks to use the um, uh, uh, technology for payments um, while preserving, you know, obviously taxation for uh, uh, investors. And this is very similar to what was done in the 90s with uh, foreign currency, because the same thing happened uh, with foreign currency where um, you would buy. And maybe some euros because you were going to uh, uh, France on vacation. Uh, while you were there, the price of the euro would rise. You'd spend the money. Technically, that was a taxable event. And so you're supposed to be paying uh, tax on uh, the gain that you experienced. But nobody actually ever did that. And so uh, what Congress did is that they created a de minimis exemption for foreign currency. Um, and so we're looking to do the same thing for, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And in order to do that, you have to work with Congress, uh, maybe over time, uh, the White House as well. I think, if I read this correctly, you fa- you founded or worked to, uh, helped to, fa- to found something called the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. You know, t- 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 talk about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you, know, you know, in Congress, you have these congressional caucuses, which are organizations of members of Congress who... Uh, uh, have a common affinity for a particular issue or cause, right? So you'll have, you know, the Congressional Milk Caucus and you'll, you'll have, uh, uh, you know, the Congressional, um, you know, Health Insurance Caucus or whatever uh, it may be. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, um, uh, you know, having worked with a few members of Congress who um, had become, uh, uh, you know, real champions uh, for this technology, um, you know, we made a suggestion that maybe it was time that, uh, such a caucus would be created. And at the time, it was Representative Polis and Representative Mulvaney <clears throat> who came together uh, to found this caucus. And there are now 12 members. Um, uh, Mr. Mulvaney, of course, is now director of OMB. Uh, and Representative Schweikert from Arizona took his place as co-chair. Um, so it's a bipartisan uh, sort of group of members of Congress uh, who care about these issues, um, who work with us. Um, for example, next week we'll be uh, having a, a briefing on the Hill uh, that's being sponsored uh, by the caucus, and we help uh, program uh, that that briefing. 
Uh, it's going to be on uh, what are called initial initial coin offerings, um, which is a term I don't like, but that's sort of what's merged. Um, and and so it's a way to uh, uh, educate staffers on this emerging issue. Um, and so the caucus really exists to again help uh, the members of Congress educate their colleagues, um, educate themselves, and develop good policy thinking uh, about about these issues. And I, sh- I should mention, uh, you, I think you said uh, Representative Paulus, um, Jared Paulus from from Colorado, was one of the co-founders uh, of this group. I think for there are a number of sort of tech entrepreneurs or people in the startup world who despair about politics, <laughs> and um, I'm, I certainly sometimes find myself in that camp. But uh, for many folks, I think he is an antidote um, to that despair. Um, he's one of the co-founders of TechStars and, and now running for governor of Colorado. Uh, so someone uh, to, for people who might might have some interest in politics and, and looking for someone that could be, you know, they might be interested in supporting so perhaps uh, an individual to uh, to check out. Let's, Jerry, let's turn uh, to ICOs. I would say that's this is probably the most hotly discussed or hotly debated subject sort of in the venture capital world with mm-hmm. some people saying, hey, we're about to be entirely displaced or disrupted by ICOs. <laughs> Others saying, this is a flash in the pan. This is illegal. Uh, this is not going to go anywhere. Folks are going to lose their shirts. Uh, curious how you see it, um, uh, either its impact or, or just uh, perhaps just from a sort of regulatory or policy perspective. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's somewhere in between. I, I uh, short of um, short of some really radical changes in law and regulation. Uh, I don't think it's going to displace venture capital, um, just simply because uh, um, you really can't um, do everything through. I guess I guess you know, tokenization doesn't really add much to securitization. Um, so that that's sort of one piece. The other thing is that ICOs make sense um, when you have a project or you know a well, a project to build new internet infrastructure, um, uh, new internet infrastructure that probably needs to use a blockchain, which in turn will have a, uh, a token component to it. Um, and this lends itself to, number one, um, you can be able, you, you can, you can uh, you're able to raise money because you have these tokens that you can pre-sell. Um, and number two, at the end of the day, nobody's going to own the infrastructure. And so really it's kind of a public good for which you would otherwise have a difficult time raising funds. What I've seen, however, are many ICOs that are just basically, it's a company that is just raising money except doing it through uh, issuing shares, they do an ICO. And for that, I think, number one, it, if you don't do it through, you know, uh, 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 in a compliant way, it's legal, um, as you say, and that's not going to last. And number two, um, it doesn't really displace VCs because I hope that what VCs bring to the table is um, a, a bit of discernment about what to back and what not to back, um, figuring out, you know, uh, giving folks uh, advice, um, uh, re- you know, re- requiring a seat on the board and steering uh, the company, et cetera, et cetera. You know, with an ICO, you can have somebody with any old idea uh, propose it to the crowd. Um, the crowd invests. There's no 
promise that anything is going to actually be delivered. Um, and uh, there's no control um, uh, that the crowd gets. Um, so, I, you know, I don't see that really displacing uh, VCs. But again, I think for building fundamental internet infrastructure, it's incredibly valuable. Um, and, and look, let me give you an example of that, right? So what do I mean by that? So, you know, if you think about fundamental internet infrastructure, like, um, uh, you know, HTTP, right? So the, the web uh, or email, um, these were fundamental protocols that we use today every day that were developed uh, at some point in the past. And typically the way that their development was funded uh, was through government grants. Um, it was either by academics or folks working in defense um, who developed these protocols that now are unowned, right? There's no company that owns email. There's no company that owns the web. These are just completely open networks. Um, and they were developed usually with government grants uh, because these things are public goods. Um, so if you wanted to build something today that, that was email, you probably would form a company and get venture backing and then own email, which would be terrible. I think it's great that email is completely open. Uh, a good example of this is Twitter. If you think about what Twitter is, uh, Twitter is basically uh, a network where you, co you connect a client and you can see people you follow, you know, what they're saying at any moment. And it's incredibly useful, um, uh, sometimes you know, more useful than others. Um, but I think it's proven its value. And what's amazing is that this is really an internet protocol that is owned by a single company. Um, you can imagine a world where Twitter was invented and it was an internet protocol nobody owned and like email you could use any provider you wanted um and uh, you could use any client you wanted they all connected to the twitter open network um and they would just interoperate with each other and nobody owned it but that's not um uh, the way that we fund things today we build things today today you have a company uh, starts up uh, they go to vcs uh, they get funded and then they own it and then uh you know, uh, that has its pluses and its minuses. So if you wanted to build something like Twitter today and you wanted to make, to make that, let that be an open internet protocol that nobody owned, um, you could create, you can make it blockchain based, which would probably, um, you know, might be smart if you want to keep a perfect record of everything that was ever said. Um, and you would have some kind of token associated with that blockchain. Um, you would have, uh, infrastructure providers, right, the folks who provide the ser you know, the, the, the servers um, and the computing resources that power, you know, since there is no one company that runs it, you would need to have a distributed uh, set of folks who are providing um, bandwidth and computing and, and storage, et cetera, for this uh, network. And you can imagine that they would be paid in this token. And if you wanted to use a network and tweet, you would need a uh, a coin, a tweet coin, let's say, in order to use the network. And so it creates this virtuous uh, cycle. Um, and, you know, of course, if you had this plan to build this, you could, uh, uh, there are a number of ways you could do it, but one way you could do it is you could pre-mine pre the coins, pre-sell the coins, then build a network, and then uh, launch it. At that point, you are out of the picture, and the network kind of runs itself. Terry Brito, fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you walking us through so much of this and, and appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure.